I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, in the spirit of the season, togetherness. Not just a pleasant thing to experience, but as the foundation for national public policy. The summer of 1992 is an unusually quiet hurricane season in Southern Florida. Month after month without so much as a tropical storm. But as forecasters like to say, it only takes one to ruin your year. Hurricane Andrew now nears the shore of Southeast Florida. At this hour, the center of the hurricane is located about 40 miles due east of Miami. Hurricane Andrew is supposed to hit Central Florida But then, unexpectedly, it takes a different track. The storm barrels toward the southern tip of the state, where a 15-year-old boy and his family, and thousands like them, are taking shelter in their homes. The storm rages through the night. The teenager and his family are among the lucky ones. They all survive. But when they leave their house in the morning, their neighborhood looks like a war zone. It's uh, almost unbelievable to watch as we see entire homes and communities leveled. There's nothing but devastation for miles around. Hundreds of houses destroyed, trees uprooted, power lines down, telephone poles snapped like toothpicks. A mile inland from the ocean, the boy finds crabs blown across the pavement and sees fish hanging from the trees. The survivors are left without electricity at the height of a steamy Florida summer. No running water, just a few days worth of food, and no clear way forward. But then something happens. Something even more surprising than Hurricane Andrew's sudden change in direction. We just came down with a load of stuff. This is our second trip down. And wherever we go, people come running after us for water. This is like the first An outpouring of generosity. Good luck, Jay. All right, bye-bye. You need anything? Who needs pampers? Supermarkets open their doors, letting residents take what they need for free. Neighbors hold barbecues to share the meat in their freezers. Perfect strangers bring in truckloads of supplies. Hundreds of people have been showing up here at the Broward Mall and Plantation, bringing all of their non-perishable goods, their water, their baby food, their diapers, everything they can get their hands on, they're bringing from their own homes to share with the people in Dade County. Hurricane Andrew will turn out to be one of the most destructive storms in American history, but it's far from the deadliest. The number of lives lost will be counted in the dozens, not hundreds or thousands. And part of the reason is the help survivors give each other, friends, neighbors, and complete strangers. It's a lesson the teenager will carry with him through his life. People are much stronger when they're together. A couple of decades later, Vivek Murthy will be in a perfect position to put that lesson to use when he's sworn in as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States. As we heard up top, that 15-year-old boy who survived Hurricane Andrew with help from the kindness of strangers went on to become Surgeon General. Vivek Murthy was just 37 when he was appointed by President Obama in 2014. He was reappointed by President Biden in March 2021. In between, he wrote a powerful book called Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. Before he became Surgeon General, Dr. Morthy founded or co-founded several organizations designed to improve and expand public health. 
One, which he started with his sister while he was still in medical school, was a peer-to-peer HIV-AIDS education program that reached tens of thousands of students in the United States and India. Another trained Indian women living in villages to become healthcare providers and educators. Another, called Doctors for America, has 18,000 physician and medical student members who advocate for quality, affordable health care for all. After Morthy was appointed Surgeon General by President Obama, he toured the United States. He asked Americans what they needed help with. He got some answers he expected, opioid addiction, anxiety, depression, and one he did not expect. People were lonely. He decided to put it on the public health agenda. When Dr. Murthy was writing his book, he interviewed Next Big Idea curator Susan Cain about her book on introverts called Quiet. Now Susan gets to return the favor for us. They spoke in May 2020. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome, Vivek, to the Next Big Idea podcast. It is so thrilling and such an honor for me personally to be here with you. We've had a chance to speak over the years, and I've been a longtime admirer of your work. And it's also just really exciting for the Next Big Idea Club to be championing your book, which is really a profound book. For those of you who are listening who haven't read it yet, I urge you to open it up as soon as we're done with this conversation. But welcome. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm so glad to be doing this together. So as I said, this book, it's really profound. And there were so many times when I was reading it that I experienced goosebumps reading about your own personal story and so many of the different stories that you weave really skillfully throughout the book. But I thought we could start by talking about this age of corona that we're in right now and what the connection is between these issues of loneliness that you've been writing about for all these years or thinking about for all these years and the age that we find ourselves in now. Because I know when you first started thinking about this book, no one could have seen that there was a pandemic around the corner that was going to be isolating us inside our homes. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question at this particular moment in time. And, you know, I will just say it is so much fun to be starting this conversation with you because I've also been a longtime admirer of your work. And as an introvert, a lifelong introvert who struggled with it a lot, reading Quiet was uh, was very empowering for me and it was empowering for my wife too. So thank you uh, for that contribution, Susan. Sure. I started writing this book and thinking about the topic of loneliness before coronavirus was on the scene because I was worried about this deep well of loneliness that I had seen in the hospital as a doctor taking care of patients, but that I also saw all across the country and around the world when I served as Surgeon General. What I've worried about with COVID-19 is that there are several factors at play here that threaten to worsen our loneliness. You know, First of all, there's the fear. During pandemics, we look around at other people and we wonder if they're vectors of infection. And the worse the illness is, the greater our fear is. And that has a chilling effect on our interaction with other people. And to compound matters, there's the physical distancing that we're being asked to observe in order to slow the spread of COVID-19. And while from a public health standpoint, that's important uh, to do because we had no other tools in our toolbox, like a vaccine or medicine, it has a consequence as well, which is that it separates us 
just at a time of great stress when we actually need each other uh, more than ever. Mm-hmm. So that has been the the double whammy, if you will, of COVID-19. So with all of this together, Susan, I worry about a social recession we may incur that would be just as consequential for our health, our happiness, and our well-being as the economic recession we may be faced with. But the good news is I don't think it has to be that way. I think that if we are intentional about how we approach each other and our social connection in this moment, if we are thoughtful about how we use technology to strengthen our connection and improve the quality of our relationships with each other, then we may be able to come out of the pandemic with, in fact, stronger connections and a greater commitment and recommitment, if you will, to our relationships than even before the pandemic began. Yeah. I think one of the life experiences you had that you wrote about that led you to this topic is your experience with Hurricane Andrew in 1992, right? You'd been caught in this terrible hurricane and you witnessed the way that your community came together as a result of that tragedy. And I want you to tell us about that experience, but also to contrast it to what we're living through now, where, you know, yesterday I went out to take a walk and I found myself veering away from any neighbors who I saw, whether I knew them or not, because it just felt like that was the right thing to do. And it felt like the exact opposite of what I had been reading about your experience with Hurricane Andrew. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I lived through Hurricane Andrew in 1992 in the summer in Miami, Florida. Uh, Hurricane Andrew was a category five hurricane that swept through the state and did extraordinary damage. And this was pre-cell phone era. Mm. It was really pre-email era as well. And so communication was really limited to the phone and to going and seeing people and to writing them letters. It was a devastating storm. And we were out of power for three weeks and we didn't have phones for six weeks. And gas was nowhere to be found for your car. So this was a really difficult time. And to give you a sense of just how isolating it was, just even physically, because the neighborhoods were destroyed and the roads were all obstructed, you couldn't drive anywhere. And it was even hard to walk, you know, beyond a short distance from your house. Mm -hmm. So many of us were truly isolated in our homes with a few lifelines to the outside world. But what happened was something almost magical uh, during that time of intense hardship, which is that neighbors started emerging from their homes to help each other, uh, recognizing that we all had shared needs. Uh, People would help each other clear their yards. They would ask if everyone was good on water. And if someone wasn't, then we would all share some of our water supply with them and our food supply as well. Within our house, it was my parents and my sister and I, we didn't have anything else that we could do, even though we had a lot to do at home. So we just did things together Uh, We ate together every night. We sat together in the evenings and told stories. Uh, We worked together side by side in the yard, clearing debris during the day. It was hard times, but it was also this time of beautiful fellowship. And Mm -hmm. there was an opportunity to strengthen bonds that we hadn't experienced before. So it it was this amazing time. And What's interesting about Hurricane Andrew, Susan, is that this phenomenon is not unique to Hurricane Andrew. It happens during times of natural disasters where people show up for each other. They come together to support one another and to rebuild their community. The challenge is what happens in the weeks 
that follow after the last house is rebuilt and the last piece of debris has been removed. And what happened in Hurricane Andrew is that while some of those bonds remained, many of them ebbed as we reverted back to our old lifestyle pre-Hurricane Andrew. And one of the things that's been on my mind ever since then is how do we hold on Mm. to that connection that we experienced during times of disaster? How do we not forget once again that those relationships are not only so important to our survival, but they feel good when we're enjoying them. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to explore that deeply in this book. And with COVID-19 also, I think we have this trauma really that is being visited upon people across the world. And while we can physically see each other and are fearful at times of contracting the virus from one another, I have seen a similar spirit that I saw in Hurricane Andrew with people sewing masks and then dropping them off at hospitals with people dropping food off to their neighbors, uh, with people leaving signs up, thanking healthcare workers and grocery store workers who are in the front line and putting themselves at risk. I've seen donations to food banks go up as even though people are struggling with job loss themselves, they recognize that many in our community are worse off. Uh, They're contributing to hunger causes. So I do think that spirit of humanity is alive and well in us. I don't think that our deepest instinct is to just look out for ourselves. I think that when push comes to shove, we do stand up for each other. We show up for each other. The real question is, how do we sustain that long after this pandemic is over? So when you were a Surgeon General, and this was obviously long before the age of Corona, you started out by taking a listening tour to hear what people's concerns were. And this was as you were deciding what were the aspects of health that you were going to be focusing on during your term. And it was during that listening tour that you decided that loneliness was this unstated, unrealized epidemic. Can you talk a little bit about what you heard on that listening tour and what led you to that conclusion? Yeah, so Susan, this was unexpected for me. You know, I had testified before the Senate during my confirmation hearing and had to list out priorities that I would work on. And mm-hmm. I had listed obesity and substance use disorders and a number of others. But at the beginning of my I term, I did go on this listening tour to, there's just something inside me that said, let's let's just go ask people what they need before mm-hmm. we build and launch a massive campaign. And it was in part driven by the training that we get in medicine, which tells us not to jump to a diagnosis, but to pause and to listen fully to what a patient is saying. Oh, that's interesting. It's not that doctors and all of us necessarily do that all the time, although we should, Mm -hmm. uh, but that is part of the core training. Uh, I remember a professor of mine in medical school saying, if you listen to a patient long enough, they'll often tell you what the diagnosis is. Mm. It's when you jump in and make assumptions that, that you start to lose that thread. And so that was part of the thinking here. So I spent the first few months traveling around the country, asking people a simple question, how can I help? And then trying to listen to what came. Now, on one level, some of the answers that I received were not entirely surprising, although they were incredibly helpful and informative. I heard stories about people's struggle with addiction. I heard heartbreaking stories of parents who had lost a child uh, to an opioid overdose. I heard people who were struggling with violence in their communities, parents who were worried about the impact of technology on their child's mental health. Mm -hmm. Uh, I heard about community leaders who were concerned about rising rates of obesity and heart disease and didn't know what they should be doing to address that. But what I also heard that I didn't expect were these threads of loneliness that seemed to weave their way through so many of these stories. 
And Susan, it wasn't people coming and saying, you know, hi, I'm Vivek, hi, I'm Susan, I'm lonely. They would say things like this. They would say, you know, I feel I have to carry all of these burdens entirely on my own. Or I feel if I disappear tomorrow, nobody would even notice Mm. or feel invisible. And hearing that again and again from parents, from kids in school, from students in universities, from farmers, from people in fishing villages in Alaska, from members of Congress in Washington, D.C., behind closed doors, it struck me that the loneliness I had experienced in my own life and the loneliness I had seen so often in the lives of my patients were not unique to my experience, but they were more representative of a deeper well of loneliness that I was seeing all across the country and in later years that I would start to see all around the world. Mm -hmm. There is literally no subject that I touched on of all the many subjects I worked on as Surgeon General that resonated as deeply and viscerally with people as a subject of loneliness and social connection. And that was a powerful, powerful sign to me. It was a sign that people, paradoxically, are united by this experience of loneliness. They just didn't know it. Because the lonelier a person gets, the harder it is to make connections. The breakthrough for the new Surgeon General was seeing this epidemic of loneliness as a public health problem, one that can be solved by public action. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. As Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Morthy was shocked by the degree of loneliness people described to him. But based on his own childhood, not really surprised. Can you share with us some of the loneliness you've experienced in your own life that perhaps allowed you to be open to the underlying message? What was it in your life that primed you that way? Well, Susan, as an introverted child who is also extremely shy, I had a hard time making friends when I was in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And, and it really seeped into my day-to-day experience. So even going to school each morning, I would feel this pit of fear welling up inside my stomach. And perhaps the scariest time of the day for me, Susan, was lunchtime when I would go into the cafeteria, but be worried that there may be nobody to sit next to. Mm. And I just couldn't wait until three o'clock every day when the bell rang to go home because at home, I knew I was loved. I had a wonderful family and my sister was amazing, but school was a really different experience. And even though I was able to build stronger connections later in life Mm -hmm. and was blessed with some deep friendships uh, that really transformed my life, I never quite forgot that experience Mm -hmm. uh, as a child because there were also times in adulthood after my residency training, even during my time as Surgeon General, when I felt those deep pangs of loneliness return for different reasons under different circumstances, but it was loneliness nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Because in medical school, Susan, I I wasn't really taught how to deal with loneliness or identify it. 
But then I started seeing uh, patients who would come into the hospital all alone. And at really difficult moments when we had to give them a, a really difficult diagnosis, I would often ask them, is there somebody I can call so that we can have this hard conversation together? And so many times they would say, there's nobody. We can just do it alone. You know, e even at the time of death, Susan, for so many patients, I, it pained me that I and my colleagues in medicine were often the only witnesses mm. to their passing. Mm. So all of these were on my mind when I was encountering these stories of loneliness uh, while I was Surgeon General. You had this incredibly loving family, but even with these warm, lovely, amazing parents, you didn't want to tell them what you were feeling at school or about your loneliness because you felt a sense of shame about it, right? Like as a kid. Absolutely. When did you first open up to them? Was it with the publication of this book or was it sometime earlier? <laughs> Can I confess something to you, Susan? We still haven't talked about it. <laughs> yeah. Although the reasons are slightly different now. When I was a child, I did not talk to them about being lonely because I was deeply ashamed of it. Yeah. I felt that it meant that I was inadequate in some way. I wasn't able to make friends. Something was broken in me. Sure. Um, and frankly, I was embarrassed. There was one moment I remember when my father brought this up because he noticed that I wasn't playing with other kids. I was just standing in a corner of the playground by myself. And he asked me why I wasn't playing with the other kids. And I just didn't know what to say. Mm -hmm. I just sat there tongue-tied. And, and I still remember just how, how just deeply uncomfortable and ashamed I was in that moment. So I never told him as a child. Later on as an adult, I didn't tell them because I didn't want them to feel bad. Mm -hmm. I didn't want them to think that somehow they had failed to pick up on something or that they hadn't given me something I needed as a child. Because the truth is, I mean, they were and are extraordinary parents who did so much for me, who continue to do so much for me, but really who gave me the foundation for building a connected life. But this shame that I felt was not unique to me. I came to realize and years later that despite how common loneliness is, so many of us, when we struggle with it, feel that we are alone in our loneliness because we look around us and nobody's talking about it. Everyone seems to have perfect lives. Uh, everyone seems to have very social lives, in fact, particularly you know, as judged by their posts on social media. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to think very quickly that we're the only ones. And as you have written about so beautifully uh, in your work, Susan, we live in a world that tilts toward the extroverted and that champions an extroverted culture. And I think all of these things combine together to, to make it hard for people who are lonely to feel that they can say anything about it. And that, I think, deepens the loneliness that we feel precisely at the time when we need to reach out to others, we need to be open and vulnerable, and we need to deepen our connection. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think makes you such a compelling human and makes your book so moving is that it's clearly informed by these personal experiences that you've been through. But then you also have this enormous empathy that has allowed you to take your own personal experience with loneliness and kind of have your heart open to people experiencing loneliness in all different kinds of ways. And there are just so many moving stories you tell through the book. One of them that maybe we could talk about for a minute is a story of a guy named Richard Lopez, who was a gang member who had never wanted to be in a gang in the first place, but joined out of loneliness. And maybe you can tell us a little bit of, uh, about his story. Yeah. 
I had come to see when I was Surgeon General that loneliness was the great masquerader. And what I mean by that is that it, it doesn't often look like this stereotype. The stereotype of loneliness is a person sitting in the corner of a room mm -hmm. at a party mm -hmm. all alone. But loneliness can show up as irritability and anger. It can show up as sadness, as withdrawal, as depression, as anxiety. Uh, and it can contribute to so many other challenges that people struggle with, whether it's substance use disorders or violence or other chronic illnesses. And I found this to be part of the story that Richard told me. Now, Richard lives in Southern California. And by the time I spoke to him, he had been out of federal prison for several months, but he had spent many years in prison uh, after being arrested for gang-related violence. And he was part of an organization now called the Anti-Recidivism Collective, ARC, an organization that was built for people who had gotten out of prison and that was meant to help them rebuild their lives so that they could be happy, fulfilled, and certainly so that they would not end up on a pathway back to prison. What was really amazing about Richard is I, I asked him what it was that led him to join a gang initially. And he began to tell me this, this poignant story about his childhood and about how he felt alone so often as a child that it seemed that he had to fend for himself. And he found himself looking for some sort of community and gangs were the natural place to go. The gang was a family. It was a place where you had support, you had people who had your back uh, and people who valued you. You know, he resisted joining for a long time because, you know, he knew that it could be dangerous at times and there were consequences. But what he kept telling me again and again in his story is just that the feeling of loneliness and that gnawing pain inside just never went away. Such that finally one day when he was with his friends and a car uh, drove by them and slowed down as it approached and these other gang members poked their head out and asked him which gang he was from, he felt compelled in that moment to shout out the name of a gang, a gang that his friends were surprised he said he was part of because they knew he wasn't part of any gang. When he felt that deep pang of being alone and not belonging to anything, when he was asked effectively, who is your family? He responded with the name of a gang. And that began this path for him over the next several years of fellowship for sure, but also deeper and deeper engagement in violence and you know, ultimately he ended up in prison for some of the crimes that he committed during that time. But what was really striking is when he came out of prison, he talked to me about just how he recognized now the importance of building human connection in his life, about how he wanted to invest in the relationships around him, recognizing that so much of what drove him to seek out gangs, even as dangerous and as life-threatening as they were, was that deep sense of loneliness that he did not want to feel again. You know, and the last thing that I remember from him in particular, Susan, is uh, when we were talking about his life now, this beautiful life that he has with his wife and his son, and he spoke just so lovingly about his son and how it's, it's the conversations with his son that make him, just make him realize like, what he's missed, but also what he wants to hold on to. He kept using the word love. And so I asked him about it. I said, it's not typical for someone who is in a gang for years and is just out of prison to talk as much about love as you do, is it? And he said, no. He's like, most of my contemporaries don't talk about love. He's like, but the reason I do is because I've realized that the opposite of loneliness is love. And when we have love in our life, we find true connection. We find true connection whenever alone. 
And so that has become like the foundation for him on rebuilding his life. But it was a powerful reminder to me that the need for us to be connected to each other is so deep, so instinctual, that we will sometimes put ourselves in harm's way in order to feel that connection, which explains why people may remain in dangerous situations, whether it's being part of a gang or being a part of an abusive relationship. If it makes them feel that they belong, that somebody sees them and that they're connected to another human being. We live in such a philosophically materialist society that I think there's almost nothing more persuasive than the idea of how physically um, destructive loneliness is for us. Can you talk a little bit about broken heart syndrome, what that is and how you've seen that come up in your life? Yeah. Well, when I was in 10th grade, my grandfather passed away after having a, a, a massive heart attack. But his brother, who he was extremely close to, came to visit him uh, after he passed away. And his brother and he were so close because their mother had passed away when they were young. And the stepmother that their father married did not take a liking to them. And she would often not give them enough food. They were often physically beaten and they had to stick together. That's how they survived. Even after they grew up, they always remained very close. And so when his brother died, my grandfather's brother showed up at the house and was just so distraught. And he looked at my grandfather lying there and he said, leaving me, you have gone. Leaving me, you have gone. And then he clutched his chest with his hand, fell to the floor and passed away even before the ambulance could arrive. He had a massive heart attack too. It was a double hit for our family and extremely painful, but it was only years later when I was practicing medicine that I came to realize what may have happened to him. Because mm -hmm. I think he may have had Takatsubo's cardiomyopathy. Takatsubo's syndrome is also called the broken heart syndrome. And it describes what happens to the heart when there's an extraordinarily stressful moment that causes a tremendous outpouring of stress hormones in the body. And at high levels, those stress hormones can be directly toxic to the heart. And they can cause what's called an apical ballooning syndrome, where the heart balloons and then pumps ineffectively. Someone who has Takatsubo's cardiomyopathy can look like they're in heart failure. And if you have the ability to get medical care quickly, then most people survive and their heart returns to normal. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case for my grandfather's brother. But Takatsubo's has always stuck with me because I ended up seeing a number of cases of Takatsubo's during my time practicing medicine. And it was always a reminder to me that our emotions really do matter. Mm -hmm. They have a powerful effect on our physical health. And we have, I think, tried in society and even in medicine to, to neatly divide what happens in our head and what happens in our physical body. But our head and our heart and our body are all so deeply connected. And Takatsubos is, is a prime example of that. I think the opposite is true, though, as well. I think the relationship that my grandfather and his brother enjoyed for all of those years, I think was deeply healing to both of them. It enabled them to overcome pretty severe trauma. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, especially given all the data we know now about social connection and health, if it didn't perhaps allow them to live longer and better lives as well. So losing a friend or a loved one can kill you. 
And making a friend or caring deeply about someone can make you stronger and healthier. Assuming you prefer option B, how can you make that happen in your own life? Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Maxine Chasling is worried about her dad. He retired recently. He's recovering from a heart bypass. He barely wants to get out of bed in the morning. This is 1987 in a small town in South Australia. The country's been hit hard by a global recession. When trading opened on Australian exchanges this morning, there were no buyers on the board. The result was the greatest single fall Australian stock markets have ever seen. The big local dairy is closing. Lots of men are out of work. And just like Maxine's dad, they're depressed, they're lonely, and they're driving their families crazy. Maxine works at a social center for older people, except it's always older women. She looks out at the parking lot and sees all the husbands, each sitting alone in his car, reading the paper, waiting for his wife while she's taking exercise classes or cooking lessons, spending time with her friends. So Maxine hatches a plan. It involves a retired carpenter named Alf Stokes and his dog. She offers Alf the use of a shed by the center. When Alf is inside, his dog parks himself outside. For the local blokes, it's like an open invitation. If the dog's there, they know they're welcome to come in. Soon, men's sheds have sprouted across Australia. It's a place where people can come and talk and tell their wolves if they got any wolves. But it's also a place where people can have a laugh. Today, there are men's sheds all over the world. Some of the guys are recovering from strokes or some of the guys have got depression even. The thing is, we don't differentiate. That one's in Scotland. In Ireland, there are sheds for men with diabetes and Alzheimer's. In Australia, the movement is now an official public health initiative. Men get together to garden or keep bees or make toys for local kids. Sometimes they learn new skills like first aid. But as Vivek Morthy tells Susan Kane, it's not really about what the men do in the sheds. It's that they do it together. Some of us like to have relationships by launching right into the deep stuff, but there are some people who want to have connections and relationships, but it's not necessary to have them on an ostensibly deep level. And what I'm thinking about here is the story you told about the men's shed movement. So can you talk about what that was like and th this movement that reached out to a group of 
lonely, retired men who really do not like to talk about their feelings. <laughs> Absolutely. I had a conversation with the founder of the Men's Sheds, uh, a woman actually named Maxine Chaseling in Australia. When she was younger and her father ended up suffering a, a severe illness and had to quit his job or retire early as a result of it. And the combination of those two factors, being ill and having to retire, plunged her father into this deep well of loneliness. But he didn't necessarily call it that and didn't certainly speak of it in that way. Instead, his loneliness manifested as being irritable and grumpy. Maxine realized that her father was lonely and that it was social connection that he needed. And so she came to realize that men and women may have different experiences when it comes to how they manifest their loneliness, but also different solutions that are required to address it. Mm -hmm. It's not always the case that men and women are so different, but the broad brush with which she painted this problem told her the following. It told her that women talk face to face and men talk shoulder to shoulder. That became one of the mottos, in fact, of the men's shed. And again, a, a vast generalization, but was true for so many of the men they serve. Their spouses and families noticed that they were appreciably more fulfilled and the idea of the shed spread like wildfire throughout Australia, where there are now nearly a thousand sheds, to the UK, where there are hundreds and hundreds of sheds, to many countries in Europe, to the United States as well. And again, it's a very simple premise that giving people an opportunity to work together, to be together in a low pressure situation can help cultivate a sense of community. And they also tracked health outcomes related to this. And they found in the UK, that people who participated in these sheds had dramatically lower levels of loneliness, that wow. their experience of anxiety was also significantly diminished, and other health indicators seemed to improve as well. All of this points, Susan, to something that we have talked about all along in this conversation, which is the extraordinary power of human connection to heal. And what I've come to realize is that at the heart of this conversation about human connection is the very important subject of love. Yeah. Because that's what these relationships are about. That love may show up as compassion or kindness or generosity or warmth, but at its heart, it is love. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think this is so important to be explicit about is I think that for some reason over time, we've come to look at love as a source of weakness, as a namby-pamby thing yeah. that isn't what real men certainly talk about or strong people. But I think when we look more deeply, we realize that love is in fact our greatest source of strength. Mm -hmm. And that's why relationships are so central to our health, to our well-being, to our fulfillment. If I had a, a simple credo, uh, Susan, for the book and for all of these efforts on loneliness, it would be three words that I only came to me at the very end, long after the book was actually in print. And those words are put people first. Mm -hmm. Because that to me feels like the credo that I want to live my life by now. It's the credo that I would love to have at the heart of the society in which I live, in which we raise our children. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about one of my proudest moments as a mom. I don't know how old my son was at the time, maybe six or something. And he drew a picture of the two of us hugging and the caption underneath was, love is great with lots of exclamation points. Oh my points. gosh, how beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's really what you're talking about. That's an alternative three words. Love is great. I love that too. And I think it's so striking that your son did that. Because I think we tell young boys as they grow up that being real men is about 
not expressing emotion, not being vulnerable, not depending on anyone else. I think the reality is that whether you're a man or a woman, that all of us have a need to feel and to experience and to receive and to give love. This is actually something that I felt my parents did for me. When I was growing up, they would show up so readily for people who were in need, uh, whether that was their patients or, or their friends. If a family member or a friend had an urgent issue, they would step away from the dinner table often to deal with it if it was an emergency. And sometimes we would get annoyed. We'd say, gosh, I wish we were, could all just hang out together. Why do they have to get on the phone again? But I now realize that they did that judiciously. They didn't do that all the time, but they did it when a friend was in crisis. And I came to appreciate that over time. They really lived by the sort of credo of a people-centered life. And it took years for that to really deeply seep in, but it ultimately affected how my sister and I lived our lives. Can you tell the story of them waking you up in the middle of the night mm. to go tend to not your father's patient, but the grieving widow of your father's patient? I was so struck by that story. It's a story that took place when I was perhaps seven years old or so. And my mother woke me up suddenly in the middle of the night and rushed me into the car. And my sister was there, bleary-eyed and sleepy. And my parents began driving us to a trailer park in Miami. And on the way, they explained that their patient, Gordon, who had struggled with many years with metastatic cancer, had just passed away. And they were worried that his wife, Ruth, would be grieving alone. And they wanted to check on Ruth. And I'll never forget the image of my mother walking up the steps of Ruth's trailer. She was dressed in her traditional Indian sari. And the door opened and I saw Ruth come out with tears streaming down her face with these black thick glasses on. And the moonlight was shining on both of them as they embraced each other. And that image has been permanently etched in my mind. And what I think about now when I recall that moment is that my mother and Ruth came from such different life experiences. But in that moment, they were family, the kind of family you aren't born into, but that you build for yourself. And that was how my parents practiced medicine. That's how they led their lives. And the truth is they did that because that's how they grew up. Because in their hometowns in India, in the modest families in which they grew up, and when I say modest, I mean in my father's case in particular, they were very poor. But even though they were poor materially, they were rich in relationships. He didn't know what loneliness was when he lived in India. Mm -hmm. There were the families in the village that had been there together for generations, and they all looked out for each other and took care of each other. Well, it wasn't that people got along all the time, but they always felt like they were part of something. And I saw that same spirit that night when my parents went to see Ruth to console her and to be with her in her moment of great need. And so that remains my inspiration today, to build that kind of people-centered life mm -hmm. and to hopefully help my children do the same. Well, thank you. This has been absolutely beautiful to listen to you and to read the book you wrote. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. And thank you so much for being in the world and for doing the work that you do. It was so nice to be able to have this conversation with you and especially meaningful to be able to do this with a friend. Thank you, Susan. Would you like more great insights from Vivek Murthy? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out his audio and video e-course. It's called The Healing Power of Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World, and it's only available on the Next Big Idea app. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. 
Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, the Next Big Idea app, or wherever you're listening right now. Many thanks to Vivek Murthy and Susan Kane. This episode was edited by Maeve McGoran and produced by Jonathan Miller. Sound designed by Jake Gorski and Mike Toda. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom, wishing you a happy new year.